Hear the word of God from Leviticus chapter 16 and 19. Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses to the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover of the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram offering for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover in front of it. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness and the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And now chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start out this morning by wishing all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. We have quite the treat for you this morning. Since the beginning of this year, we've been going at a brisk walk pace through the the books of Moses. We just finished Exodus last week, which spends the last 15 chapters talking about the construction of the tabernacle and God's presence dwelling among Israel. And now we are to the book of Leviticus. Some call it the the rose of, of the books of Moses. No, they don't. I'm, I'm just kidding. I made that up. Uh, as I was studying through Leviticus this week, my mind kept coming back to this idea of, of silhouettes. So I wanted to share, I want to put these, these pictures on the screen of, of some silhouettes for you. 
And you notice I'm, I'm trying to appeal to a, to a, a wide range of audience members here um, as we're looking at these different uh, silhouettes that you see, these different characters. Um, but, but silhouettes are, are interesting. They only give you a, the picture in part, which creates an element of, of mystery. All you get are the, the rough edges outlined and filled in. Nothing more. But it's a little different when you look at silhouettes you recognize. While their features are absent, their character is undeniable. You know them. You know their stories. You know their purposes. Leviticus shows us the silhouette of Jesus. At first, there's, there's definitely some mystery. But as we start to connect the dots of the rough edges, I think we'll see that Jesus' silhouette is undeniable. And when coming to Jesus, there's always more than what meets the eye. So as we jump in this morning, let me ask you this hypothetical question. What do you think would happen if the triangle followed the laws of Leviticus for a week? What do you think? I can, I can already start to imagine the pushback. Some of you are thinking, wait, 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 wait. No, no, like Jesus, Jesus already took care of that. We don't need to follow these laws. What, what are you talking about? Others of you are like, animal sacrifices? Really? You want me to go and take care of animals? To care for them, tend to them, and to sacrifice them? Can't I just donate to the church? But we have to move past the strangeness of these instructions. Remember that God is teaching a new way of life. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for us going back to the old way. We're under the law of grace. We're under the law of Christ. But what do you think, what do you think their lives were like? What do you think having these laws was helping them to do? What, what would we think about if we had to follow these laws? What would our interactions with each other be like? What would our relationship with God be like? I want you to hang on to that. The law could never make us right with God. We know that. Not because the law was deficient. We were the weak ones. But when we think about the law, isn't it our tendency to fixate on this idea that we can't draw near to God? We can't be close to Him. We're too sinful. It's a demoralizing thought, isn't it? But it also seems to miss God's heart in giving the law. You see, God delights in the reality that he can overcome human impossibilities. Scholar Robin Weeks says, Weeks says, Those God makes holy, he then calls to be holy in order to reflect his holiness. Knowing that his people remain sinful, God in his kindness makes provision for their cleansing. That doesn't sound like a debilitating God, but one who purifies those he loves. And that brings us right into the confrontation of this book. The goal of Leviticus is not salvation, but holiness. Time and time again, when referring to some kind of salvation moment in the Old Testament, what does it refer back to? The law? No. The Exodus event. So it would actually be more helpful for us to understand the instruction of Leviticus as a right response to God's secure salvation. Old Testament professor Jace Glarch says this about the instructions in Leviticus. He says, as a result, 
Israel was not to follow these laws in order to earn salvation from the Lord, but as the appropriate response of reverential love and worship to the Lord who had already redeemed them. That's us. That's our status. That's our standing. God has already redeemed us. Now, there are five major themes highlighted in the book of Leviticus. Pastor Lawrence will touch on themes of sacrifice and priesthood next week. But for this week, I want to hone in on on these themes of, of purity, atonement, and holiness. What Leviticus challenges us to recognize is something that is both simple and profound. God is holy. That is a loaded statement that we say without even blinking an eye. But holiness is more than an attribute of God. It's more than an attribute of God because God defines holiness more than holiness defines God. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God's name is holy. Revelation 15, 4 says that God alone is holy. God being holy is in totality. There's nothing about God that is not holy. And there's nothing apart from God that can be holy. Holiness finds its source in God, and God wants us to be holy. So we should pursue holiness. And if holiness finds its source in God, then by pursuing holiness, we are running to God. So here are my three points this morning. Pursuing holiness produces a pure heart. Pursuing holiness trusts Christ's atoning work. Pursuing holiness proclaims God's lavish love. Pursuing holiness produces a pure heart, number one. Here we're asking the question, what does it mean to be clean and unclean? I mean, why does God even make these designations? In Leviticus, God has established guidelines for how Israel is to live in a manner that honors him as holy God. Chapters 11 through 15 are dedicated to this topic of being clean and unclean, which is similar but different than sacred and profane. These are categories. I want to show this diagram to you. This this diagram is showing the the encampment um, of, of of the campground. Uh, of the tabernacle surrounding the the, the way that Israel would travel. And and what you're seeing depicted are the different spaces as they relate to God's space. Notice that the most holy place is the center of the encampment. The most holy place was the innermost part of the tabernacle. This was where the Ark of the Covenant was placed, literally the, the, the footstool of God, of his throne room. And the closer you get to God, the fewer people can come in. Only a select people were anointed and given the responsibility of mediation between God and Israel. This is the priesthood. And those who were ritually impure were prohibited from entering the spaces that were nearer to God. Someone who was in a state of ritual impurity could not go into the sanctuary lest they make the sanctuary and those within it impure. Now there are two potential problems I see in trying to understand impurity in this way. First is the tendency to confuse ritual purity with moral purity. Being permitted to draw near to God due to to cleanliness was not about whether or not you were in a state of sin. Clean and unclean is not the same as sinful or uh, or holy, sacred, profane, as we said. The the best example I can think of to help us here is, is if you become sick. 
Let's say one of us gets the flu. We, we would advise that person to, to stay away from gatherings to, for fear that they might leave residual germs on surfaces or come into contact and get others sick, right? I mean, we would readily acknowledge that now as a, as a way of practicing neighbor love. So the point is, we shouldn't think of natural bodily functions to be a sign of moral failure, which is what Leviticus touches on quite a bit. It seems strange. It's weird. But rather... What scholar and theologian Derek Timbo calls this is, is a consequence of living in a natural, fallen world. The second potential pitfall is that our modern minds have a disdain for the exclusion of anyone. We have an aversion to it. Why would anybody be excluded from the gathering? Isn't that wrong? But in reality, we must recognize our responsibility to God and His holiness. Anyone's exclusion shouldn't lead to the conclusion that God is in the business of turning people away. But rather, we should see it as a divine grace that God invites any of us in at all. Again, Tidbill says, While these regulations stress the need to approach God in a state of ritual purity, the greater stress is on the wonderful provision God makes to enable those to whom the pollutions of the world cling to be cleansed and restored to active participation in the community of those who worship him. Worshiping God is a delight to both God and the worshiper. And God permits ways for them to come back in. There are ways to clean yourself, to come back into the spaces that that are sacred, to worship the Lord. But what we cannot underestimate in all of this is what might be produced by seeking to maintain ritual purity. Remember the question I asked earlier? What do you think would happen if the triangle followed the laws of Leviticus for a week? Well, Old Testament professor Jay Sklar talks about teaching a graduate-level course on the book of Leviticus. Now, this may sound daunting to you. It sounds a little daunting to me, but, but it should come as no surprise. Because graduate programs like to put you through the gauntlet, don't they? And seminary is no different. Well, in this particular class... Sklar likes to assign his students the task of following as many of the laws from Leviticus as are practicable for a week. And at the end of the week, he asks them to write a paper reflecting on their experience. Now, what would you expect them to say? You'd probably expect them to have some, some good seminary answer because they're seminary students, right? Well, you're right. They, they had great answers. But, but Sklar said, student after student after student reported that as they were thinking about maintaining ritual purity, they found themselves considering more and more about their moral purity and wondering if they were actively pursuing being holy as God is holy. They would ask questions like, have I been dealing properly with my moral impurity? When's the last time you asked yourself if you had anything you needed to repent of? In other words, the practice of ritual purity cannot be divorced from the rest of life. What this is teaching us is that God cares about the whole person. He doesn't want us to be partially clean. He wants us to be totally clean, both physically and spiritually. In Hosea 6.6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. What he is saying is that giving sacrifices without your heart being devoted to him, it's hypocrisy. 
It's insincere. One of Sklar's students captures this idea well. He says, Every day I found myself focused on thinking about ritual purity and impurity. Partway through the week, I realized that what I was thinking about, that I was thinking about these things all day long and in every aspect of my life. And that's when it hit me. God cares a lot about our purity and holiness. Not just from a ritual perspective, but also from a moral perspective. All day long and in every aspect of life, the Lord wants me to pursue purity in my heart, in my life, in my actions. He wants me to reflect His holiness in all that I do. I have been treating holiness way too lightly. Oh Lord, help me to be holy. What if we stop treating our freedom in Christ as license to be casual toward God? What if we stop thinking that God doesn't care about our appetites, but instead realize that God actually cares a lot about our heart desires? Jesus said in Matthew 5 that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But nowhere does anyone say to stop worrying about being holy. In fact, Paul begins his letter to the church in Corinth by addressing them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. In Ephesians, Paul teaches that sexual immorality, greed, or any other kind of impurity is improper for God's holy people. And Peter tells us to be holy in all that we do. You see, the call to holiness hasn't gone anywhere. The freedom we share in Christ is not freedom to reckless living. It's freedom to know and love God. Now let me be clear here. What I am talking about is a matter of sanctification, not justification. Justification is a fancy word that means God has declared us right with Him in Jesus. That's our position before Him. It's a one-time event that happens outside of us. We didn't do anything to earn it. God has done it for us. Sanctification is the process of being made right in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's inside of you and ongoing. This is what we enjoy under the new covenant in Christ. This is what Jeremiah talked about. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. New hearts that love God. Pursuing holiness means desiring a pure heart. Through a better covenant and the Holy Spirit, the Lord writes His law, not on stone tablets, but on our hearts. He cleanses us and teaches us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, may we not treat that gift lightly. Second. Pursuing holiness trusts Christ's atoning work. Here we're asking the question, what is the day of atonement? What is the day of atonement and how does that fit into the the, the greater story that God is telling? As we look at the day of atonement in, in Leviticus 16, the first thing I want to point out is God's holy presence is still a central theme. It's a central theme in the day of atonement. We see that when we recognize how the high priest was instructed to prepare and interact with God. In chapter 16, we see several details that highlight this reality. First, in in verse 3, God instructs that this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place, 
the most holy place. This is the place in, in the, the interior part of the, the sanctuary, the, the tabernacle. This is where God will dwell. Meaning not even the high priest has the authority to come to God whenever he chooses. He must come to God on God's terms at a specific time and in a specific way. Second, the high priest himself needs to be cleansed. Verses 3 and 4 tell us as much. He is to bathe himself and to offer a bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. He does this to cover the guilt of himself and his family. The sprinkling of the blood means that what deserves death is being covered in life. The blood symbolizes life. Third, the high priest is not even able to see the Lord face to face. Back in verse 2, God says that his presence will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Now, the atonement cover is the top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the cherubim sit. And the, the, the Day of Atonement was the only day during the entire year that anyone could, anyone could go behind that curtain to stand before the presence of God. Only the high priest was permitted to do this. Meaning there is only one person in the whole world who is permitted to stand before the presence of God, but not face to face. This is why verses 12 and 13 instruct Aaron to take a censer to burn incense. It was so that a screen of smoke could cover the atonement cover and protect Aaron from gazing at the holy presence of God. This is how set apart, how totally holy God is. The second thing I want to point out is how God deals with our sin. Both the cleansing of people and spaces were necessary. The spaces of God's sanctuary needed to be cleansed, not because of covenant unfaithfulness on Israel's part, but because of ignorance or neglect of ritual purity. Polluting the sanctuary was inevitable. It was unavoidable. Those who were ritually unclean polluted spaces that were ritually clean. The spaces that defiled people inhabit need cleansing, which is a necessary part of God's space coming into contact or interaction with human space. Cleansing the sanctuary and the people were inextricably linked. They are both necessary. And God is not just cleansing us. He is purifying everything. Now verses 7 through 10 tell us that during this ritual ceremony, the high priest was to take two goats without blemish. One goat would be for the Lord and the other would serve as a scapegoat. Two goats, one live, one slaughtered. Why? Verse 15 tells us that the slaughtered goat would be used to make atonement. The sins of the people could and would be forgiven. This forgiveness would come by way of a substitute. Somebody would step in the place of the, the guilty party. Verses 20 through 22 show us what happens with the scapegoat. Aaron puts his hands on the live goat and confesses all the wickedness and rebellion of the people as if to transfer their incurred guilt onto this animal. And then the goat is sent outside of the encampment into the wilderness, literally going as far away from God as possible, showing us that God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Two goats functioning as a whole to picture one reality— God has forgiven, cleansed, and removed our sins. He atones and he cleanses. Now here is the problem we are all susceptible to. It was for Israel in their own way, 
and it is for us and ours. The world tells us that we are deeply capable. And as much as we say we reject it, our hearts are enticed to listen. All too often we are prone to think of ourselves as moral successes. Some of us could use a reckoning with our sin. Earlier I mentioned that God delights in overcoming human impossibilities. When I was in middle school, Adidas had this ad campaign going on called Impossible is Nothing. I mean, this poster in particular stands out. I want to show it, I'll put it on the screen for you. This, this poster in particular stands out to me because uh, it shows uh, David Beckham in his Real Madrid jersey. And, and in the picture, it looks like he's, he's celebrating a goal. And, and the whole ethos of this campaign was to inspire. I mean, it made you want to get up and do something. The whole idea was to motivate you to believe in yourself. If you dream big enough, if you worked hard enough, if you persevered long enough, you could do anything. You could be great. You could make the impossible possible. This was a philosophy for life. It's transcended sports. That thing still fires me up. I get excited about it. But what God is doing, the humanly impossible that he makes possible, what I'm talking about, I don't care how much you dream or work or persevere. Being able to stand in the presence of God on your merits, to stand as an equal with God, that is not in your wheelhouse. I don't care how morally successful you think you are. Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham says, these atonement day rituals make the impossible possible. By cleansing the sanctuary, they permit the holy God to dwell among an unholy people. Verse 17 underlines the fact that only one man, the high priest, may enter into the holy of holies, the most holy place. And as we spelled out earlier, the high priest was totally outside of his depths. The only person permitted to stand before the presence of God on behalf of the rest of the community, and he needs all these provisions and ritual purifications. Now this isn't a knock on the high priest. No one short of God could stand before the holy God and see him as he is. Now, when you understand that backdrop, the silhouette of Jesus becomes undeniably recognizable. He becomes like that silhouette, that all those silhouettes that we showed before, but he is greater than all of them. It even puts an edge on the language used in the New Testament as it fills in the features surrounding the person and work of Jesus. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul asks, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. 
And even now, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The day of atonement was a shadow of things to come. It was a preview of coming attractions. One day, a better high priest would come, one who didn't need all this extracurricular stuff to stand before the presence of God. And he would offer a better sacrifice. The day of atonement was a yearly practice. They had to do this again and again and again and again. The cross of Christ was once for all. This is why Christians talk so much about the blood of Jesus. We're strange, but we're not crazy. Charles Spurgeon was right when he preached, the blood of Christ, it is all sufficient. There's no case which the blood of Christ cannot meet. There's no sin which it cannot wash away. There's no multiplicity of sin which it cannot cleanse. No aggravation of guilt which it cannot remove. In other words, any one of us can get in on this. Do you think you're too good for God? That sounds like the arrogant voice of an overconfident world. You need to humble yourself under the right judgment of God. Do you think your sin is too unbearably bad? Leviticus 16.16 says that the atonement offered was for whatever their sins have been, meaning all of them. I have no doubt you've done some incredibly wicked things. And I have no doubt you're unaware of your present sin in your life. I'm sure there is some in there. There's probably both. And you're trying to deal with both of them. But God loves turning human impossibilities on their head. Which proves that it's Him. It's Him doing the work. Certainly not us. He can stir up the affections of those who find His grace dull. And He can revive the hearts of even those who would rather have nothing to do with Him. I mean, testimonies like people like C.S. Lewis tell us as much. Go look it up. You see, God is proclaiming to us through the sacrifice and exaltation of His Son that Jesus atones our sins and cleanses our hearts. He calls us to draw near, to receive His Spirit, our helper, and to boldly and confidently call upon Him in times of need. Jesus supplies all that we need. God has initiated this grace by the desire of His heart. He secured it in the work of His Son, and He applies it through the power of His Spirit. So we pursue holiness because we trust Christ's atoning work and His work in our lives, even today. Three, pursuing holiness proclaims God's lavish love. At the heart of holiness is God Himself. And so the question we end on is one that I think is also very practical. What does it look like to practice the character of God? God didn't intend for the pursuit of holiness to be an unattainable goal. He didn't set high standards so that we would feel our backs break under the weight of His grandeur, or that we would turn to fatalism, acting as if there is no hope. Left to ourselves, that is true. But God does not leave us to ourselves. Through God's holiness, He is displaying who He is through what He is like. I think it's undeniable that God is one who lavishly loves without any underlying motivations. He doesn't have ulterior motives. He's not trying to get something out of you for his benefit. Though it is going to benefit him, it's for all of our gain. 
So what would practicing the character of God look like? Once again, Professor J. Sklar is, is helpful here. And this is where we're going to end. Notice, notice that it's not just about subtraction, but addition. You give to the poor instead of maximizing personal profit. You refuse to pervert justice, but fight for what is right and true. You speak truthfully of others instead of indulging in the temptation to slander them. You show respect and honor to fellow image bearers and treat them with the same care as and, and they, you, I'm sorry, you show respect and honor to fellow image bearers as they slow and weaken with age, and you put yourself in the shoes of foreigners and treat them with the same care as your own people. Or as the prophet Micah says, we do this by doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. That is what it means to be holy as God is holy. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning praying, Lord, would, would you be with us? God, we exalt your name. We, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for doing this work on our behalf, that you have atoned for our sins. Lord, you, you cleanse us. You purify us. But Lord, in, in what you are doing, you are purifying the whole world. This is, this is, this is an exhaustive thing. You, you are bringing everything under your reign, which means you are cleansing everything. And Lord, we pray that, that we, as, as, your, as your children, you call us your children, we pray as your, as your stewards of, of, of your truth, Lord, of your word, that we would be ministers of, of, this, of this word, that we would preach, that we would bear witness to who you are, or that we would rightly bear witness as we seek to be holy, Lord. Would your spirit be working in us? Would you give us the help that we desperately need, Lord? And Lord, we trust you. We trust that you are doing this work for us. You have done it already on our behalf. Would you continue this, Lord, to completion that we might be perfect in Christ Jesus? Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.